Once, long, long ago, I actually got on the phone and chatted with Brene Brown about the possibility of writing a book together about paradox. I thought with everything that she could bring, which is actually now I think about it, everything, <laughs> and me, not entirely sure what I'd bring other than an idea for a book on paradox, but I thought we could co-create something fantastic, something fascinating between us. Now, my guess is once we rang off, she thought about that for about, you know, two seconds before deciding to write, you know, Daring Greatly or one of her other following great books. So it's clear that she made the right call and didn't co-write that book with me. But that doesn't stop me loving paradox. I think it's a place where logic bends, where unexpected combinations create magic, where the impossible lurks. Paradox is where the shy mysteries of the universe peek out and wave hello. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Randy Stanley is the author of the book, This Plus That. It's actually got the essence of paradox built into that. I mean, there's already a generosity and an openness in that book title that I actually think you'll find in this conversation. Now, you'll find Brandy happily thriving in many intersections, including the one where this podcast lives, the intersection between the written word and speaking it out aloud. I grew up around a lot of spoken word culture, um, poetry, and so I think I just love how the written word sounds out loud. Now, you might have guessed that Brandy is a creative soul. And in fact, she describes herself as someone who is spiritual, even mystical. But she also has to exist here in the physical realm, you know, where jobs and eating are things that you've actually got to figure out. It, it can be difficult to figure out as like spiritual leaning or mystic people in the world, how you actually survive financially. And I spent about 20 years as a branding and marketing professional. It was um, the way I knew how to monetize a, sort of a mystical gift. But I was curious, if you dig down through that technical expertise, what's at the heart of it? I have a gift, I think, for sort of spotting the essence of people and things. It's like another way of articulation, right? How, how can we articulate the essence of what you are and communicate that to a wider group of people so that your people find you? This rings a bell for me. I often say that perhaps my best skill, my genius work, if you like, is unweirding stuff, helping find simplicity on the other side of complexity. Ironically, <laughs> that's a long-winded, non-essential way of saying I try and find the essence in things and communicate it in a way that other people find helpful. Now, the essence of things, the essence of ideas is one thing. The essence of a person is another thing altogether, more complex and more elusive. And I was curious to know what Brandy believed her essence is. Ooh. Um, I actually heard in a podcast, and I don't know if you do this in every episode, but I did hear it in the one with um, the woman who was speaking about grief and hospice care at the end, sort of closing with a question that's like, what didn't we cover today? And I was once in a workshop where one of the first things they asked us to do is to pair up with someone else and to ask this total stranger, what is it that you feel like no one ever asks you? Like, what's the thing that is missing, basically, mm. that you don't sort of a way to say, like, how do you? not feel seen. Yeah. Um, my answer would probably be 
yeah, what is my essence? I think probably I've always been interested in the deeply sort of spiritual and mystical and the existential, like the hearts of what we're doing here. And, and I think every writer and artist and scientist, like we're all sort of in our own way, figuring out how to grapple or make meaning with life, you know? And so yeah. I think, um, I'm, I sort of find myself in that lineage of tradition, I think, and that's where I like to sort of position myself, but not in a, I don't know, like self-aggrandizing way, just in a like, I think when you really get into any sort of mystical work or sort of grappling with those deeper questions, you realize how quickly uh, you actually know nothing. <laughs> and, um, you are and, nothing, you know yeah. nothing. <laughs> yeah, and I think I'm currently, I think, just in a place where I am dealing with like a lot of personal grief and change mm. and loss and feeling so ungrounded and it's brought up so many, um, mm. you know, like those things where you go like, aren't I a spiritual person? Can't I be okay with being ungrounded? And you're like, no, right. I'm just today I'm scared and I'm flailing and I'm sad and I'm, you know, all those things. So, um, yeah, I think it is a practice of like, I hope, like my, I hope that my essence is a practice of being in that space. And I think that's really what this plus that even was about of grappling with contradiction and uncertainty and um, right. paradox and all of those things. So yeah, I, I think um, seeming contradictions and paradox are sort of at the heart of what <laughs> I'm walking around with every day. Do you remember the moment when you became first aware of mysticalness, if that's even a word, you know, that kind of when, when that, when that thing got awakened or you, you, that door got open for the first time. Yeah. I think that's a pretty personal story, which is, I think when I was younger, I grew up with an alcoholic parent and just in a, you know, sort of struggling family. And I was, I grew up as an only child, but I had a half brother that didn't live with us. Mm. Um, so I was the only kid in the house. And I remember in probably mid to late high school, I was just, I'd been having a really hard time with life, you know, family life was difficult and, um, I didn't sort of know my place and school, of course, at that age is just really a mess. <laughs> You're just yeah. like a personal mess. And, um, I, met someone on a bus. It was one of those truly mystical experiences where you're like, the sh I was the shy kid. Um, no reason at all for me to choose to sit down next to a stranger when there were tons of seats open on the bus, but I choose to sit down next to this person and eventually become friends with her. And, you know, she sort of introduces me to, I grew up in Dallas, so I grew up in the South. So when we're talking mystical things, I started out in Christianity, like a lot of folks in the Southern U.S. have. Um, and yeah, so I just became friends with her. And eventually there was, I remember walking outside one day between classes and for someone who had, was just struggling so much and was, I think probably grappling with a lot of like depression and mental health issues at that age. Hmm. I found myself walking outside between classes with a smile on my face. And I remember very distinctly thinking some sort of hole that I didn't even know was existed feels like hmm. it's been filled. And, um, you know, I sort of continued learning in that sort of tradition and, you know, eventually like a lot of people too, who kind of grew up in it, it wasn't my family tradition, but I was still young enough that I sort of grew up in Christianity and, you know, I started grappling with what that actually meant. And if right. what I was being told through the church, you know, was really what I believed and all of those things. But 
that was sort of, or even, I, I mean, I even think that before that, I remember moments where like my parents would be fighting or something and I would be alone in my room and I'd be like, I don't praying, even though I didn't know what prayer was and yeah. just sort of going like, I think probably bargaining even like if, if you help change this, I will do <laughs> right. X, you know? Right. Um, so, I mean, I, th I think whatever it was, I, I can't remember the name of the book, but I remember she opens it with something like, I've always believed in whatever laid behind the universe or something like that. And I think there was just always something in me that sort of believed in some sort of like energy or spiritual force or, you know, I think I've, mm -hmm. I've given it a lot of names the same way that most of us have sort of grappled with naming it in a lot of different ways. Sure. Um, but yeah, I think it's just always sort of been there, but that sort of high school experience is the first time I remember like really concretely engaging with that. Yeah. You've already um, alluded to some of the, the the things you've been wrestling with. I'm, I'm wondering what you've learned over time are sources of strength and stability for you. Hmm. You mean like the things that sort of ground me? Yeah. Um, weirdly and interestingly, I actually do think that books are one of those things. I just... Second. Yeah, I find violently agree with each other from here on in. <laughs> Great. Um, I just find so much grounding and wisdom there that, um, and yeah. it's, I think that's where I like tap into source in a lot of ways, right? Like mm. where I meet sort of the things that like light up the stuff in me that, you know, sort of makes me come alive. So when I get into those moments, it makes me feel very grounded. Um, I think too, in moments where the very rare moments in my life where I've made it through conflict with people and on the other side of that have felt a deeper sense of intimacy and like, oh, whew, mm -hmm. it's okay. We're okay. <laughs> life is okay. We can do this yeah. thing. You know, like I'm not alone. We're, we're in this together. We're willing to sort of suffer through this or work through these challenges, um, which I think just comes up because it's relevant in my life currently. And I think nature you know, yeah. there are these like really simple answers, books and nature, but truly when I'm, when I camp actually is one of the most, um, grounded and, and empowered and solo camping, like put me out in the world. I'm, I have had moments in my life of feeling very terrified that I was going to become, um, Christopher McCandless where I was just gonna, um, which is into the wild. So I might just die in right, a van right. alone in the Alaskan wilderness or something. <laughs> right. uh, Cause I do, I think that sort of mystical tendency too, it's really hard for folks, I think, to grapple with being both like sort of spiritual leaning who need like mm. a lot of deep alone time and reflection and all those things at which we find alone in the wilderness very often. Yeah. And also being part of the world and having to like be in modern society. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think sort of regrounding myself in nature has always been a real, and I think a lot of what I write about sort of pulls in ecology too. I think ecology and the sciences in my artistic practice has always been like, you know, even astronomy and, or, you know, just like everything to do with the cosmos basically has always been really interesting to me. So anything that's sort of of the natural world, I just, yeah. I find myself in very often. Randy, it feels like there's a lot to to dig into, but I, I want to take you to the book you've chosen for us. What, what have awesome. you picked? So the book I picked is called Matter and Desire and Erotic Ecology, which is already a scandalous sounding title, but um, <laughs> is not necessarily what it sounds like it's about. Now, this is not a book I know at all. So how did it come into your life? Yeah. So actually I interviewed Andreas Weber on my podcast and it was one of the most glorious two hours of my life I've ever spent. He's just... <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> he's brilliant. Uh, but I was introduced to Matter and Desire, this book, in around 2018 or 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tell the, a lot more of this story on that interview, but I interestingly was at a moment where I felt like um, I had been grappling with death in a real way. And that I think was more, I got really into like social justice culture and all kinds of things, you know, in my sort of mid, like early to mid twenties. And that sort of lasted a lot of time um, up through my mid thirties. And um, I think when Trump was elected in the US, I, like a lot of people who were sort of left leaning, had a lot of questions about what that was going to mean for my life and for my family's life um, and future generations. And, uh, you know, that there's so much more context I'd really love to provide around that, but won't. I'll spare everybody that, um, you know, because there's a lot of different takes politically. But regardless, I was grappling with the idea of death, not necessarily like, you know, someone hadn't died in my family, but it just felt like for the first time I was really going like, oh my gosh, you know, my own life might be on the line here. And also like I had a lot of people around me who were wondering whether or not they should have children because of, you know, the environment and all kinds of things. So anyway, someone had introduced me to this and, um, I had also just read, um, Wendell Berry's art of the commonplace, um, nice. or yep. his collection of essays called art of the commonplace. And, um, that really was the first entree. And then interestingly had found matter and desire through a friend, um, the same friend who introduced me to Wendell Berry and weirdly, they both deeply grapple with the idea of death and contradiction and aliveness and how to live lives that are most alive. So um, this book sort of became, you know, a handful of years later, it's still so meaningful to me. And every word of it's beautiful. I have a friend I've recommended it to who continually is like, Brandy, I keep trying to read it, but I get a page (laughs) in and there's so much to take in. I love. I put it down again and I just like never finished. So that's sort of what it's like. That's wonderful. And yeah. you chosen two pages. How did you manage to choose two pages? <laughs> if every page is, if yeah, every sentence is glorious, how did you come to choose? Oh, there we go. I Here's see that. the book. And yeah. I, I don't know if you can see this, but like, I mean, most of it's underlined. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was quite difficult to find two pages. Yeah. But I think, again, I, this is just where I'm at. And for whatever reason, you know, sort of like you said, when we got on, uh, something finds you when it's supposed to, you know, yeah. and these sort of called to me at the moment. And so that's where I landed. Perfect. Well, Brandy, I'm excited to hear this. This is going to be a new experience for me. So over to you. Thanks, Great. Brandy. Actually, I will also give a little bit more context, which is I think he is very much in the line of folks like Robin Wall Kimmerer and some of the sort of like indigenous or ecological writers of the mm. world. So if anyone likes Robin Wall Kimmerer, I think you'd really enjoy this. Um, okay. So yeah, so Andreas Weber is the the author's name, and he's um, his website I think is even biopoetics.com or something like that. He's in very much in my lane, which is mixing together things that seem uh, unconnected in some way. So he is a very poetic biologist, mm. um, and so the way he opens this piece is he's telling a story about a time at a conference where many young biologists and philosophers had gathered together to talk about what he said was an alternative view of life. He doesn't expand on that more. So (laughs) I wish I knew what that meant, but, or at least to him, but so one night they're all outside going back and forth between this cold pond and a steaming sauna, these two seeming extremes, right? And he winds up in conversation with one of his colleagues named Kalevi Cole, 
brought about because of this setting of seeming contradictions, the hot, very hot and the very cold. The reason Kalevi prodded me so much about the opposition of the two elements of our chaste bacchanalian enjoyment that evening had something to do with the questions that he was interested in that summer. How much opposition can a life form tolerate within itself? How much opposition is necessary for the process of life to progress at all? How crucial is the idea of opposition, or paradox, to our understanding of life? Kalevi goes one step further. A cell only functions, he said to me on that evening between a few sips of beer, because it is incompatible with itself, because its component parts are irreconcilable. Every cell is its own contradiction as long as it is alive. So for the individual parts of a cell, does living mean having to help one another understand each other? I asked in response. Precisely. He reflected on that a while and then continued. In a cell, dimensions that are fully irreconcilable come into contact with one another. The genetic data, which is an abstract code, and the cell body, which is a concrete material being in space. Both are incompatible with one another, and this incompatibility means that one always has to be translated into the other. Then there is always an excess that cannot be transferred, I thought aloud. Understanding fails. But in the logic of this antithesis, it, is only, it only has the chance to be understanding because it must ultimately fail. Were it not for the ever-present possibility of death, beings would not need to be possessed by the urge to evolve, to go on existing. Without death, the being is a machine. Or more generally, aliveness must be able to fail if it is to be truly alive. Only because of death does life become creative. Yes, Kalevi cried, slapping his knee. In the lavish summer sunlight that spread between shadowy trees and seemed to dissolve the transparent blades of grass into the surrounding air, my own ruthless assessment seemed unreal to me. Was this very moment not one in which everything seemed to be in harmony? In which harmony actually proved to be the true character of the world? But I knew that Kalevi's surprising hunches were usually accurate. And perhaps that evening, at the height of midsummer, was, in truth, an example of just that, of the necessity of death that would cause the pond to freeze over and stiffen the linden trunks, so that after a while they might capture our hearts once more with the ecstatic hopes of spring. The northern summer splendor owes everything to the long, gloomy winter. All must be informed by darkness and all success by suffering, the philosopher and mystic Richard Rohr observes. This attitude, the ever-present belief that you can rescue yourself in the security of just one side, ironing out painful contradictions once and for all, robs us of our aliveness. The English philosopher Alan Watts says, by and large, Western civilization is a celebration of the illusion that good may exist without evil, light without darkness, and pleasure without pang. And this is true of both its Christian and secular technological phases. This would mean that wherever there is beauty and productivity, there is also a bleak, abysmal side that we cannot avoid. Everything else is an illusion. And it would also mean that after 200 years of intensive attempts to bring about enlightenment and illumination, now that our civilization has put the earth in a position more unsettling than any it has been in for the last 200 million years, perhaps the moment has come 
to say goodbye to our belief in a life without death. If this biology of death and ecology of contradictions were true, that would open new doors. The world of healthy life would then be a good deal more problematic than it had once appeared to be, but also a good deal closer to what it feels like on the inside, in my experience. A challenge to turn contradictions into a narrative that produced meaning. I discovered that life, in truth, is a whole network of such incompatibilities, and I began to get used to the thought that this is perhaps the only reason that it functions at all. Beautiful. Thank you. Oh my goodness, there's so much there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've, got, I've got like 86 different questions I could ask you, but let me ask you this. Um, what is it about this that struck so deep a chord with you? Yeah, I think it's that line, especially right now, that's the this attitude, the ever-present belief that you can rescue yourself in the security of just one side, ironing out painful mm-hmm. contradictions once and for all, robs us of our aliveness. Yeah. Is um, right now so present for me because I mean, again, I write so much about contradiction and seeming disparity and paradox and all of these things, but um, you know, I I say this a lot in interviews, which is that I think. You know, I think our creative um, containers, the creative containers that we create are the, um, I heard someone say recently are like the next creative container we create is the next thing we need to heal us, basically, like some aspect Mm -hmm. of us that we need healed. And it became pretty evident in me that not long after creating this plus that, I thought it was about just really celebrating all of these like cool people in the world who were mixing together all of these interesting things and genres and Mm. stuff. And what it became was, or what it was always was, but became evident to me later was something, a a container for me that allowed to work me to work out my own internal contradictions or seeming contradictions. And so I talk about aliveness a lot, but it has become very evident to me that in my own life, my own dying and my own death and not literally physical, but even like spiritual or whatever, just a continual reworking and death or loss of different things about myself and my identity or what I believe and, um, is necessary. And I, I can't, I want so badly to get rid of it. I hate, honestly, like, I mean, conflict, I think, um, is sort of at the heart of this that I think, um, conflict breeds intimacy, but intimacy requires, um, real comfort with death, you know, to, Mm. to be in relationship with people or things or nature even, you know, requires a safety that's created at the heart of it where you're actually allowed to work out all of these things that you're terrified of in yourself, um, and therefore terrified of in other people also. And so, yeah, I think, as much as my brain and my heart like really want to embrace contradiction and, you know, the beauty and aliveness and all, you know, like, Oh, contradiction is part of the world and paradox is part of the, you know, like the inherent fabric of the universe. I internally still have like, you know, demons that so badly want to get rid of all of the ugly and all of the painful and my own, terrible, awful, monstrous self that also is beautiful and incredible and smart and intelligent and writes well, you know, like all the nice things about me. And so, yeah, I just, I feel really in it. And I think it's because I'm really in some sort of relational conflict at the moment. So 
Yeah. Well, I can, I can, I can feel how you're in it at the moment. As you talk about being present to death and what's dying, the question I want to ask you is: What do you feel is being born? What's 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 emerging? Um. Yeah. What an incredible question. Um, I, I mean, I think that's the question I've asked myself in the midst of the pain, right? Because I think when you're in it, you're just always like, okay, I need to know what is coming of this because it's so painful. <laughs> um, yeah. I think, honestly, um, a lot of it has to do with my own um, – it's like a knowing I have that we are interdependent, that we are um, communal creatures, you know, we need each other. But um, I think probably in a lot of ways, finding on my in my own self that um, to sort of not be defined externally by other people or things. So what relationships I'm in, what work I'm doing, whatever I feel like, you know, it's interesting, I think, and so fitting to me that I sort of came into the work I thought I was here to do. And I still think I'm here to do in a lot of ways. Yeah. And as soon as I got several months into that, the universe was like, oh, yeah, um, we're not going to let you have that until you sort of work out some issues that you have of like over identifying with it or right. um, whatever. And so I think there's a lot of sort of internal self-confidence that I'm working through and also um, yeah. I mean, honestly, the, the answer is, I think around, I've been working through a lot of attachment, um, wounding, I think. And so that's sort of what comes up for me consistently in sort of conflict with people. Sure. And I think that's not abnormal. I think a lot of us are sort of like, we're sort of new to that language and it's been helpful for a lot of people. So we're, we're sort of working through that right now, but okay. can you, can you unpick what attachment wounding means? I've, I've, yeah. I've, that's a new phrase for me and I've got a sense of what it might mean, but how, how do you talk about that? Yeah, so I think the way I'd, I'd speak about it is um, sort of uh, dynamics that we learned in early childhood or like as very small, like, you know, even babies, I think that we learn how to be in relationship with people and yeah. often, um, you know, and how to get our needs met. And, you know, when we've been sort of wounded in a way, it sort of imprints on us a way to sort of behave in the world that teaches us like how we are the only ways that do work in order to get our needs met that are actually quite unhealthy. Um, and so, um, you often hear people when talking about attachment, there's, I think three or four different sort of buckets that you trend toward my sort of growing belief is that we are all mostly a mix of them, depending on the yeah. context and the dynamic of any particular relationship we're in. And so, um, but it's like avoidant who sort of tend to back away when feeling scared and mm. anxious people who try to like run toward when feeling scared. Um, and people who sort of are a mix of those or just like, you know, you even think about, or you hear about, um, sort of nervous system language of like fight, mm flight or freeze. Sure. And so that's yeah. sort of similar also. Nice. Yeah. Paradox is something that you think about and write about and, and, um, you know, work with in terms of this plus that. What paradoxes in you have you become reconciled with? And how did you find reconciliation? Yeah, I think I'll at least start with lighter things there than all the <laughs> emotional stuff I've been in. But the, I mean, I think 
my greatest joys and the things that I do feel like I've done a better job of reconciling um, so far are, you know, I think this plus that largely started under a deep interest in the mashing together of art and science. I think Mm. those are historical generational divides that have been built um, that tell us that we're all quite different from one another um, and various conceptions that come along with both of those categories. And, you know, I had grown up in what was um, my dad called the artistic or the creative side of the family, which is something he was told by his mother because um, he loved guitar. And, you know, I was a writer and, you know, I've drawn for a lot of my life or whatever. And so we were sort of the creatives and my dad's brother, um, my uncle is like a mathematician and his wife is like a philosopher and just like a double doctorate in language and something else. They're just very smart people. And my grandfather was an engineer and my grandmother was a teacher. And so we were sort of looked at like my dad and I were sort of um, looked at like the creatives and the other side was more scientific or engineering. And, and so um, sort of, Later in my adulthood, I found myself considering becoming an astronaut, uh, which I started to take pretty seriously. It was not a joke for me. And um, yeah, I just, I started to really follow that path. I got really curious about what it was that was really intriguing to me about quantum physics and, um, you know, all those things. And, and so chased that down and yeah, just eventually started um, writing really about those intersections. And I think that in me has been, there's been a lot of times even as a writer or a creative of any kind that um, being more even mystical has been hard because I know a lot of my audience started in a place where I was talking about scientific things. And so I yeah. saw myself and still think grapple with it a bit in terms of like, um, uh, what would the word be like, just sort of managing my language, like how much I was willing mm. to actually share or how I was sharing it and not sort of displaying my full self. And so, yeah, I think that other thing is that, you know, growing up in a sort of Christian culture, I guess is what I'd call it. And then later coming out as queer and, um, you know, all of these things that were difficult contradictions about what I'd been told about my own identity and what was okay about my mysticism and all of that. And yeah, I think that one by and large, like my, my queerness feels so intertwined now with my mysticism right. that I can't find a place to separate them um, at all. Can so, you me, yeah. Can you shed some light about how you, you intertwine them? Because me listening and asking questions, but other people listening as well might be saying, I'm, I'm conscious of, of this paradox, this contradiction about who I am. Yeah. I'm looking for a while away not to, you know, what is, what is the saying? Believe in the uh, rescuing yourself by leaving in one of those and not the yeah. others, but yeah. bringing them together. And, you know, there's work involved in doing that. Well, you know, what, mm-hmm. what was the work? How did you find a way of bringing them together rather than pushing one away? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> To be fair, I mean, that's like a 10 plus year process, right? So (laughs) I can condense that down, though. I think for me that often the work of doing that, of grappling with and sort of, you know, integrating, I think that's a great word for what that work is, is to integrate these seemingly disparate parts of ourselves is um, I I think I've always seen um, my gift or one of my biggest gifts as being a translator. I think... Mm. um, 
because I kind of have always floated in between worlds, I sort of pick up on the languages of whichever community I seem to be a part of. And if you put me in a group of Christians, I can say something scientific in a way that actually translates to them and, mm-hmm. um, and vice versa. And so I think what that really is at the heart of it is um, pattern recognition. So you start to spot Smart. the same way this group does this one thing is actually mm. really similar to the way this other group does this other thing. And if they just said it in a way that the other group recognized, it would translate to their ear a lot mm. better. And so I think for me, I was just you know, everything from like being in a car and listening to a spiritual podcast from one of my favorite spiritual teachers who um, had a guest on at some point, like, I don't know, eight years ago, maybe, who was talking about the nature of God and Christ and all of these things. And I had this like out loud sort of revelation where I was like, <laughs> oh my God, Christ. he says something that I think is hilarious and deserves more, requires more context. But the line was, Christ was the original punk. Um, nice. And I remember saying out loud, oh my God, Christ was the original queer based on all these things, you know, like the, the values and the thought and the belief system inside of queerness. I was like, that's what Christ and God were like speaking to. Like that's the same essence. And so I think, yeah, that started for me to like really um, mesh and integrate those things together where I could spot patterns across um, Mm. all of the different things and then learn to go like, oh, these are actually all one and the same. I'm going to ask you a question I think follows up from that. Because in some ways I feel what you've named there is a gift of being, as you say, in between worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the words you use on your website is uh, fugitive. And I think that's a really resonant yeah, word. Stolen um, from Bioacomalafe, but yes. Right. Well, who's, who's a wonderful teacher as well. Yeah. Um, What's the gift you feel you've been granted by being a fugitive or an outsider or between worlds? Uh, yeah, I think it's um, it's helping people be seen hmm. when they feel like they don't belong, um, when they've been sort of told you're supposed to look like this one thing or this one way, you're supposed to behave this one way or um, believe these certain things. And if you don't fully sort of, you know, I I think a lot of my past because of the religious sort of context comes with a lot of recognition that uh, we can make anything into a religion if we try hard enough. Um, And so I think it's an ability to empathize and create common ground with people who feel like, wait a second, I believe like 90% of what this thing is saying, but not (laughs) the other 10%. And because of that, the people who are in the group are telling me that I don't belong or making me feel as though I don't belong. And so I think it's in a lot of ways creating a space for people who um, Mm. feel like they've been told that they can only be one thing or there's only one right way to be um, if they, if they believe or love a particular thing. What have you learned about self care on this journey? Yeah, I think a lot of my answer with that has to do with the idea of nourishment and actually goes a lot back to um, Andreas Weber, the idea of aliveness. So 
um, nourishment to me is a question about what it is that we feed ourselves that brings us most alive. Mm. And so, um, to me that, <clears throat> that really um, leaks through everything. Uh, that's what work am I doing that brings me most alive? Um, am I even recently, I think realizing like often when I do work for other people, just to like make money yeah. <laughs> instead of doing work that I love to do. Um, it's often rooted in a fear that I'm not safe or that, um, yeah, it's, it's so much easier to give my own life away than it is to believe that my own life and aliveness is possible, I think. Right. And so, um, yeah, I think it's a constant question. Self-care to me is a constant question of like, how am I nourishing myself um, or how am I giving away my nourishment? And I often use sort of the language of um, empty calories that I think we often feed ourselves empty calories in order to feel full, but right. we don't. We feel an emptiness, you know, like whether it's eating terrible food all the time or doing work yeah. we don't love you know, mm -hmm. um, constantly or just like being so busy that we just never are present for life, you know, like it's, yeah. how can I keep myself as distracted as possible in order mm -hmm. to get through this rather than how can I be as nourished and present and well fed as possible? Um, and I mean that and very liberally, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Randy, it's, it's been a lovely conversation. Thank you. Um, you heard, you said you'd listened to a previous interview with, uh, Catherine Mannix and you're right. I have a question that I finished with, and I'm going to ask you the same question I asked her. Um, and it's this, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? Um, I mean, I don't know. I think the thing that comes up for me right now, which is really the only truth I can tell is, um, I don't know, I think maybe sharing what I've most needed to tell myself recently, which is, right. um, all of my faults are not singular, <laughs> <laughs> meaning, um, you're not alone. Uh, there's a reason that we all struggle with similar things, you know, mm. culture and a complex set of life systems that keep us in this place and family dynamics and all of these things. But, um, they might manifest maybe in different ways, you know, but they're really all the at heart, I think, a root of the same sickness, which is being separated um, from ourselves and from each other and from what lies behind the, you know, you know nature and source and all of those things. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's like at its simplest, like you're, <laughs> you're not terrible. You're actually beautiful, but, or maybe you are terrible, but you're also a lot of other beautiful things. Here's the line that has stuck with me from this conversation with Brandy, and this is a quote. I think conflict breeds intimacy, but intimacy requires real comfort with death. To be in relationship with people or things or nature even, you require a safety that's created at the heart of it, where you're actually allowed to work out all these things that you're terrified of in yourself and therefore terrified of in other people as well. Conflict breeds intimacy. 
Wow. What if getting better at disagreeing, at fighting, at clashing was helpful? I mean, of course, you can imagine doing that badly. In fact, you probably don't have to imagine it. You probably, like me, done it badly. But I'd love to continue deepening my capacity to disagree as a commitment to deepening my capacity to be intimate, to share what's most precious to me and about me. In my newest book, How to Work with Almost Anyone, I say a best possible relationship should be safe, vital, and repairable. And it's a paradox, and it's nice to finish with a paradox, just like we started, that things get safer by us getting better at conflict. Two, actually three episodes to recommend this week um, that build off this one. Mia Birdsong, The Sacred and the Mundane, wonderful conversation about um, Braiding Sweet Glasses, the book that she read, um, and really rich, nuanced conversation about what was sacred and how that grew from the mundane. Uh, Tia Belt Mannequin, a second interview, which is like how to surrender to your heart, a story of seeking a life of purpose. And then Catherine Mannix, who I think uh, we actually referenced briefly in the interview, such a good writer about palliative care, about facing into death. Um, I don't have the name of that interview to hand, but that I loved my conversation with Catherine. And of course, if you want more information about Brandy Stanley, I'd point you to her website, thisplusthat.com. And there's a newsletter there and there's a podcast there as well. Thank you for listening. Appreciate you. Uh, thank you for loving the podcast. And however you do that, listening to it is an act of love. And so thank you for that. If you're so moved to pass the interview on, share it with somebody, uh, give it a review, big it up in some way in the world, then that's deeply appreciated as well. Um, I'm hoping people discover this podcast. I want to keep doing it. I really want it to take off and grow the audience. And you can really help me in that. So thank you for all you do. You're awesome. And you're doing great.